Hello and good evening, uh, everyone. My name is uh, Eric Neumann. I am the head of the Department of Geography and Environment, and I'll be chairing uh, tonight's uh, event. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Lücke, she told me, Fries, who is the Danish Minister for Climate and Energy and also, importantly, the Minister for Gender Equality. Uh, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit how that got uh, together later, later on. It's an unusual combination. Uh, now, the last time I uh, introduced a Minister for Climate and I think uh, the Environment, uh, was, was her title. Uh, she got ever so slightly offended when I said that the, actually the previous government didn't play a particularly constructive role in climate change negotiations. The country is Australia. Uh, and I'm, I'm very happy to say, you know, there's no risk of this happening tonight because Denmark, of course, has always been almost a role model. Uh, in these things. Uh, it has one of the most advanced wind industries in the world. It's a world export uh, front runner. Uh, so uh, Denmark is, is sort of uh, out of the deep there. Um, Lücke has been, most importantly for those uh, here, uh, is actually an alumna of the LSE. She has done an MSc in European Studies uh, in 1992. So you can see there is hope uh, and future for all of you. Um, she is actually, uh, she has gone on to do another MSc. One was not enough, apparently. Uh, in Political Science, University of Copenhagen. She also received a PhD in International Politics, University of Copenhagen as well. Later on, she became, uh, that's, that's what she has done until about one year ago when she joined politics, the pro-rector of the University of, of Copenhagen. So you can see she has uh, legs in different uh, fields, politics, uh, university. She's also been the... Um, how is it called the of uh, the head of Fair European of politics, no, no, no. the Confederation of no no to that I come in a, in a moment by <laughs> Munich Confederation of Danish Industries. Uh, so she's been really uh, uh, prolific with with many many interests, uh, and uh, since one year for one year now she has been. Uh, Danish minister. Uh, Wikipedia, always a liable, reliable uh, source <laughs> that my, uh, our students uh, like to cite, tells me that she's also a connoisseur of German football and a fan of FC Bayern Munich. No. Yes. <laughs> Which has just had That's the, the worst. The lecture, yeah, which has just had the worst start to the Bundesliga season in its entire history, but I'm sure that's not your fault. Thank you very much for coming, and uh, please uh, welcome us in welcoming the Christmas. Guess I will not tease, tease you on FC Saarbrücken, where they are at the moment in German soccer. No, thank you very much for this uh, very kind introduction. It's a great pleasure to be back. And, uh, well, my name, Lücke, actually means happiness, so it's uh, quite easy to be happy. Uh, I was here, as you rightly say, in, uh, in 92, had one of the best years ever, I would say, doing my master's in European studies. It was a year that, uh, at least if you are from Denmark, is very difficult to forget. A year full of turmoil that had nothing to do with my sort of uh, studying here. But uh, first, a uh, majority of uh, Danish voters for the first time ever rejected an EU treaty. 
in a national referendum, that was the so-called Maastricht Treaty. Then a couple of weeks afterwards, Denmark, also for the first time ever, won the European Championship in football, beating Germany 2-0. There you go. <laughs> and um, our foreign minister at that time managed to combine the two events in one sentence when he told the European press, well, if you can't join them, beat them. <laughs> so I would say, while preparing for this speech, I obviously had great memories of the three tons, the beaver, and so forth. But I couldn't help spending just a few minutes on one of the LSE's most famous alumni, the right honorable Jim Hacker. Because actually, when I obtained a cabinet post last year, a friend of mine who also studied here at the LSE immediately sent me the DVD box of the series, Yes, Minister, where obviously the LSE educator Jim Hacker is constantly teased on account of his education by his permanent secretary, Sir Humphrey, who obviously graduated from Oxford. Well, he who laughs last laughs longest. Just. Uh, Take the recent showdown in the Labour Party between the two Milibans. Who won? The brother who went to the London School of Economics for his postgraduate studies. <laughs> so hang in there with your studies. Uh, you definitely chose the right school. Well, enough of my trip down the uh, memory lane. And uh, well, just one word on the, uh, I mean, apt. I mean, I think it's the best combination you could ever have. I mean, climate, energy, and gender equality. Just think of good old Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland. There it is. Okay, but let's uh, start somewhere completely a different place, not London. Let's go to Stanford. Let's go to uh, where you have the former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, who's now back in the so-called Ivory Tower. And immediately after she left the State Department, she said the following. I can tell you, nothing surprised me more as Secretary of State than the way energy politics distorts world politics. It has given extraordinary power to states that tend to use it in an inappropriate way, quote unquote. And this is indeed the topic of today's lecture. What impact does the energy have on world politics? Why has energy politics moved from so-called low to high politics? And how should Europe respond to this new situation. I'll start by presenting three arguments why energy policy is now high politics, then I'll focus upon the policy response for Europe and obviously also for my own country, Denmark. The first reason why energy is now high politics is very simple. In 2050, the world's population is projected to increase to 9 billion. That is an extra China, US, Russia and Europe within the next 40 years. And with a growing global middle class, for instance, in India, more people will demand cars, fridges, city breaks, iPads, and all the other commodities of modern life. As Gandhi once put it, if an entire nation of 300 million took to similar economic exploitation like the West, it would strip the world bare like locust. Quote, unquote. Well, today, the Indian population has exceeded one billion with a growing need for energy. And you could say with a growth rate like, in, like China's, India's energy consumption is definitely exploding. Of course, research and innovation will eventually produce new kinds of energy and also new energy efficient products. 
But there is no doubt that the increased global consumption is bound to put an increased pressure on practically every natural resource on the globe, including those that power our current black economy, like oil, gas, and coal. This leads me to my second argument, because at the same time as demand for energy is going up, the supply of energy is going down. Here we are obviously entering the dangerous territories, theories of peak oil and lots of debate on when oil will eventually run out. But let's be frank, researchers may disagree on when oil, gas and coal will run out, but they don't disagree on the fact that this will eventually happen. Depending upon who you trust, the world will have oil for the next 40 years and gas for the next 60 years. This will obviously have a major impact upon the price of fossil fuels, which is bound to go up. And what is more, since the days of easy oil are definitely over, we'll see companies taking more and more risks to extract remaining oil. And I guess here it is sufficient just to refer to Deepwater Horizon. But just as importantly, due to the shortage of fossil fuels, we are in for a completely new situation where the world's previous arms race will be replaced by a race for energy. Many countries, including the new big powers, will try to secure as many of the world's remaining resources. Indeed, you could say where the leaders of the world used to mark their geographical conquests with small flags on each side of the Iron Curtain, they now are marking their access to oil fields and gas pipes. Just take the Arctic. In October 2007, two Russian submarines planted their white, blue, red flags right there at the bottom. At the same time, China built gigantic icebreakers to collect data on oil reserves and metals in the area. And countries like Canada and Denmark are also hoping to put their hands on some of these reserves. Or take another region like Africa, which is believed to possess around 10% of the oil resources of the world. The last couple of years, especially the US, China, India, but also Europe, have competed to get a hold of these resources. And indeed, it is all more or less impossible to understand African policy if you do not keep a close eye on energy. Just like any other race, the energy race will have winners and losers. And since energy is so vital to our economy, and for that matter also our military, the winners of the race will have a much bigger say in world politics. <coughs> or to push the point even further. During the Cold War, the world was divided between two superpowers. Today, we are facing a new kind of bipolarity, not between the US and the Soviet Union, but between those that have energy and those who haven't, between those who import energy and those who have a surplus for export. The exporting nations are bound to raise their voice at the international level, whereas the ones on the receiving end of energy will become rather tongue-tied when they discuss with countries which will determine whether their citizens have electricity and heat at home. But this is still not the entire story, and this is my third point here. We need to consider the implications of depending on the distribution of the world's remaining oil and gas reserves and the fact that those who have the reserves will are placed in very few countries. And once we do that, it becomes clear that many of these do not all share the values of the so-called West. Already back in 2006, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, coined the term the first law of petropolitics. 
And that's a very simple law. Every time the price of oil and gas goes up, the incentive of the energy-producing countries to embark upon political reforms goes the exact other way. This has been common knowledge in the US for many years. Just take one of uh, Condoleezza Rice's predecessors, Dr. Henry Kissinger, who argued that the US import of oil from the Middle East was the biggest transfer of wealth from one region to the other in human history. Indeed, in 2008, the 13 OPEC members alone have earned more than 1,000 billion US dollars from oil sales, and the US spends about 1 billion a day on foreign oil. This obviously has a tremendous impact upon the American economy and eventually, obviously, also its security policy. Richard Lugar, a Republican senator, has put it like this. Without revolutionary changes in our energy policy at home, we risk a multitude of catastrophes that will limit our way of life, our foreign policy goals, and leave us open to the pressure of rogue states, quote unquote. These were the three arguments for why now you could say that energy policy has become high politics. It is one thing to realize that, it is quite another to act upon this new fact of international relations. So what is the policy response for us in the European Union, but obviously also for the individual member states? Well, in my mind, the policy response can be summed up as follows. We simply need to limit our over-reliance on fossil fuels and eventually become independent of coal, oil, and gas. Let me just give you some very simple but thought-provoking figures. In 2030, Europe is expected to import 66% of our coal, 80% of our gas, and 90% of our oil. This will make us extremely vulnerable in the new world of limited energy, and this is definitely not science fiction. Just think back to January 2009, when Russia suddenly turned off the gas to Ukraine, and hence also Europe, leaving thousands of Europeans to freeze in their homes. In reality, and in more general terms, what is at stake here is our common energy security, as was also stated yesterday in the new British national security strategy. But this is also about economics. If we don't transform ourselves, we'll be spending more and more of our GDP on fossil fuels. At the same time, as we'll not get access to the many new jobs that make up the clean tech industry, one of the most promising new industries. Or let me phrase it differently. Instead of transferring billions of pounds to energy producing regimes, for instance in the Middle East, we shall embark upon a paradigm shift at home and invest massively in European green jobs and technology. In practice, this means that we should transform Europe into a low carbon society with renewable energy and a strong emphasis on energy efficiency. To be sure, this will also be beneficial to the overall combat against climate change. Denmark, if you allow me to put on my national hat for a moment, is an excellent case study that the Green Way is definitely not a dead end. To illustrate this, let's take a short detour to Washington, D.C. More than 30 years ago, the American president, Jimmy Carter, during the first major oil crisis, tried to address the exact same issue by placing large blue sun panels on top of the White House as he announced that America was going green. In front of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, he predicted, I quote, a generation from now, the solar heater can either be a curiosity, 
a museum piece, an example of a road not taken, or it can be just a small part of one of the greatest and most exciting adventures ever undertaken by American people, quote unquote. What happened? Mm, well, many things happened, but uh, at a certain stage, Jimmy Carter lost the election to Ronald Reagan. And what did he do? Well, he not only told Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, he also told his staff to tear down the solar panels. And well, quite ironically, the solar panels did end up in a museum, but in China, which is now the biggest producer of sun panels worldwide. And what did we do at the same time in Denmark? Well, when the oil crisis struck in the 70s, we chose the road less traveled by. We chose to put emphasis on energy savings and renewable energy. So instead of tearing down solar panels, we started putting up wind turbines and invested massively in combined heat and power production. And we didn't stop when oil started to flow again in the 80s. And what is more, throughout these years, we have shown that investing in renewables goes hand in hand with economic growth. As a matter of fact, since 1980, the Danish economy has grown by almost 80%, while our energy consumption has remained more or less constant and CO2 emissions have been reduced. The share of oil in the total Danish energy consumption has fallen dramatically over the years. At the same time, renewable energy is now covering almost one-fifth of our energy consumption. Today, almost 12% of exports come from clean tech, and it's now part of the Danish brand on the global scene. Indeed, we were just made fun of in the American cartoon, The Simpsons. Here, Homer is persuaded by his daughter, Lisa, to buy a wind turbine from the Danish wind industry. And quite correctly, wind is introduced as the new energy that powers Denmark. But, I guess you can also say that usually it's only sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger, American presidents who sort of are made fun of by the Simpsons. So I guess that's really sort of uh, something we should be proud of, and we are. But we should not rest on our green laurels. That's why the uh, Danish government in 2008 set up a national commission to help us to become completely independent of fossil fuels. The commission just presented its report last month, and its core conclusion is that independence is not a pipe dream. It can be done, and exactly because the prices on fossil fuels are bound to go up, it can be done at only a limited extra cost. Indeed, you can say that the slightly higher bill for green energy is an insurance premium that we pay for not having to participate in the global energy race and hence deposit a large pile of our room for maneuver among a limited number of energy producing countries. Our official goal is now to become independent in 2050, but Denmark is obviously not an energy island. We are part of the European Union, despite the fact that we voted no in 92. So we'll pursue our energy transformation together with the rest of Europe. Just to give you two examples, as the uh, only country together with uh, the UK, we just decide to support that the EU should raise its own reduction target from 20% to 30% CO2 emissions in 2020, disregarding what happens in Cancun at the COP16. This will not only boost our clean tech industry, it will also breathe new life into our common trading scheme of CO2 credits, the so-called ETS system. 
But just as importantly, we are also strongly in favor of developing a common European energy infrastructure, the so-called supergrid system. To be very concrete, such a system would enable us in Denmark to export our extra wind energy to Germany when their solar panels are not producing any energy. Sometimes it does actually rain in Germany. I can say that because I'm half German. Similarly, we could import solar energy from Spain, Portugal, and Germany when our wind uh, in Scandinavia is not blowing. As a result, the price of renewable energy would come down, and we would be able to adapt large volumes of renewable energy into our grid. To be sure, because of the importance of energy policy to all of us, there is no doubt, and I guess I can say that with some credibility as a former student of the LSE in European Studies, that energy policy will soon make up a large part, or even larger part, of the curriculum also here in the European Studies program. Just to give you one indication, the EU is scheduled to hold its first ever special summit on energy in February next year. And well, eventually, I guess, the EU will also to a larger extent, speak with one voice. After all, if we all go to, for instance, Russia individually to negotiate gas contracts, we are bound to get a worse deal than if we negotiate as a union. But this will still be quite a journey to travel before we actually manage to do that. Well, to conclude, I started this lecture with Jim Hacker, so let me also end this lecture with him, and I'm actually going to see the, the play now. It's now a play at the theater. Yeah, on tomorrow. Yeah, and in one of my favorite episodes, um, it's called the official visit. Jim Hacker is scheduled to meet the president of Burundi, a country which he first calls, I quote, a tin pot little African country, until Sir Humphrey tells him that well, Burundi, well, they may have some oil. As always, things go terribly, terribly wrong. First, the President of Burundi plans on writing a speech urging the Scots and the Irish to fight against British colonialism. Then Hacker realizes that the President is actually a former student, fellow student at the London School of Economics. <laughs> so what to do, he desperately asks Sir Humphrey. I quote, if we do nothing, that means we implicitly agree with the speech. Two, if we launch a protest, it will be ignored. Three, if we break off diplomatic relations, then we can't negotiate the OIRIC contracts. Quote, unquote. Well, that sketch may be funny when you see it, and it's also from the 80s, but it actually sums up one of the points in this lecture quite nicely, that, well, if we do not transform ourselves into a low-carbon economy, well, we become heavily dependent upon, obviously, the oil-producing remaining countries of the world. So let's, to quote Jimmy Carter, make this the greatest and most exciting adventure ever. Let it not be the road not taken, and let's act now and become a region for a blossoming green economy. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much for a uh, very uh, entertaining but also extremely interesting speech. I wished all our uh, ministerial speakers were, were that uh, interesting and uh, entertaining to listen to. Uh, that was... Uh, well, I guess they didn't go to the LSE, so that didn't. must be the explanation. You are one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Let's see what uh, studies at LSE can do for you. So we have, uh, we have about half an hour... Like 
We have about half an hour for uh, uh, questions and, and, and answers. Uh, I will, uh, can we take two or three at yeah, a sure. time? Uh, I will take two or three at a time, and then uh, we'll give Luke the opportunity to, to answer. Now, I'm looking for questions, not statements. Questions are things that end with a question mark, and your voice goes sort of a little bit up, uh, instead of sort of prolonged uh, statements. So um, that, that's basically the rules. Off the game. We're going to start uh, up here with those uh, two, and then you are third. Please uh, speak into the mic. If you could please say who you are and what you stand over there. You go over there? Yeah. Okay. Just. Yes, please. Hi, my name is Maria Carvalho. I'm a first year PhD student at uh, the Grantham Institute or with the geography department. And my question is, we're talking about Europe in the new energy world order, and we see uh, the OPEC countries. So we're trying to put pressure on uh, oil producing countries to, in terms of political power, maybe human rights, uh, different things. And, but already a lot of the OPEC countries, including Saudi Arabia, export most of their oil to Southeast Asia. It doesn't go to Europe or the US. And um, if, and I can see more of their exports actually going to Southeast Asia, especially since Southeast Asia's demographics or population is going up. So if Europe is to exert power on oil producing countries, I would assume it's, I, I'm just thinking of demand displacement going to Southeast Asia. So wouldn't it be more that China and the countries that actually consume those countries' oil, they would have more power over oil producing countries rather than Europe or US, no matter how much they wean themselves off? Okay, thank you. Hi, um, thank you. That was a fantastic lecture. Um, I, I had a question on the on oil lobbies and how we send, I mean, I'm sure I didn't find the power. Where are you? Hi. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, so as we understand that this problem is, pro the, the level of this problem is approaching to a whole new level and that the, that the timeline we have is, is very close. So, and there is undeniably a very strong oil lobby internationally, worldwide, in different political frameworks and states, which is influencing state policy to a very large extent, which is, un which is obviously creating a problem for clean tech to grow as an as a industry. Uh, how do we change this uh, from a state perspective or from an international perspective? And as your experience as a Danish minister, uh, what's my question? Yeah, thank you. Can we take one more? Is that okay? Or yeah, would I'm you not sure I understood the last part of the oh, question. Sorry, no, my, my question is how do we change this or how do we work towards changing uh, or, or resisting oil lobbies, the, yeah. the influence of oil lobbies oh, in the inter international oh, yeah. energy okay. political yeah. framework? How do we break their power, yeah. I think, is the, okay. is the yeah. question. Yeah. Can we take one more? Yeah, sure, yeah. Is that fine? One more, please, here. Hello, uh, my name is Mary Mommy. I just wondered what your stance was on deep water drilling that has been proposed around Greenland by KN Energy. Um, probably a couple of other companies, so. Okay. You do get critical questions if you come to the London School. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, fine. that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. We'll take your answers, please, now. Yeah, yes, sure. please. Sure, yeah. And they are also supposed to, not, not to go up, but to remain there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You didn't give me any sort of hints on that. Uh, well, I think, I mean, the, um, I guess I can kind of group the two, the two first questions uh, together, because I think what is, uh, Vitally important is obviously that uh, if we manage in Europe, that was part of the first question, to come forward with the, the new green technology and the new renewable energy, which is actually, I mean, online and which will also work immediately in China, as we see now, for instance, with, uh, with offshore wind, we, are, we have a product 
which will obviously be able then also to influence the power of the oil lobby and of the oil producing countries. And we definitely see that. And we also look upon China. I mean, there is, there is a, a strong interest in uh, renewable energy. There's a strong interest in limiting their energy intensity as such. And there's a strong interest in also just being able to breathe. Uh, and I think that is definitely a very strong driver that we now see also in, in a country like Asia. So I think to produce, to come forward with these uh, new sort of very, very strong renewable energy sectors such as offshore wind, we can actually be able also to, to make an impact uh, worldwide. And that will also have an impact upon the oil lobby as such. However, I also think that we need to continue working towards a global deal with regards to climate change by putting a price on carbon. This will obviously have an impact upon the, uh, not only the oil lobby, but, but on the producers of fossil fuels as such. And well, we all know that, uh, I didn't touch, didn't speak that much about that, about Copenhagen as such, about COP15, that uh, it was not wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen. We did not really strike the deal or manage to agree upon the, the big global deal that uh, we all hoped for, uh, not only in Denmark, but basically also in the entire Europe. But now we are still working very hard to see whether we can pursue this question in Cancun. And uh, well, now that it is called Cancun, I know that those who deal with international relations sometimes think that Cancun stands for WTO negotiations, and they kind of drag on and on and on. But Cancun can also be Cancun can. So this will be our, our goal together with the Mexicans, because Denmark still has the, the presidency uh, of the COP negotiations, to agree upon a balanced Cancun package with a number of very, very concrete decisions on adaptation, on financing with regards to climate change, on forestry, and then obviously also a roadmap for the period uh, after uh, Cancun, because it's very clear that it will not be a hole in one. We'll not be able to agree upon the big, big package either in, in Cancun. Uh, Greenland, well, that was a very tricky question. Um, Greenland now, uh, as I'm sure you know, has self-rule, so there is self-government, uh, so this is part of the sovereignty of the competences of Greenland as such. So what they do with regards to deep water drilling is the competence of Greenland, so it is not the competence of, of my government of Denmark as such. But as you can imagine, we are obviously in very close uh, contact, very close dialogue also in the EU as such, trying to see what can we learn from deep water horizon. And frankly, uh, we have all uh, sort of strengthened our security, and I know that's also been the case in, in, in the UK. Uh, we're also coming forward with, with common sort of uh, strengthening of security in the EU as such. But we still really do not know what actually happened. Uh, we do not know what was uh, the overall sort of... Uh, Course, what caused the, the, uh, the tragedy with God's deep water horizon. There we are still waiting for the analysis to come out of Washington. And once we have that, we will obviously act upon that in the European Union as such, but obviously also as nation states. Thank you. Yes, we'll have one question over here, second, third. Hi, I'm, I'm Michael. I'm a government and economic student at the LSE. Um, in regards to the Council of Ministers, where do you see the national lines as lying um, within the Council of Ministers? Uh, what defines them? And in Europe, who are your biggest allies and adversaries in terms of green energy? Thank you. 
any Fine. ambassadors around before I answer that question? Yes. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Mary Bukarin and just started a master's in here, okay. environmental policy and regulation. Um, I'm Finnish. Um, how do you see the EU's role in the international negotiations and in a wider perspective of um, energy policy or energy politics, if you like, unless um, the EU get their act together and raise their target to at least 30 percent? by 2020. Thanks. And my name is Ebba John and I work for Dong Energy UK. Um, I was just wondering what your view on the ownership structure of energy industries going forward. Um, is it more important to have national industries when energy becomes more of a national high-profile question and will it turn out to have been a horrible mistake for the UK to have privatised to the extent that they actually have? I'm not sure I'll answer the last question, I must admit. Um, I think uh, that's, I mean, very much up to the, to the, Nash, to, to the country that, that you're in. I mean, we still also, I mean, as you know, I mean, Dong is still also, I mean, <laughs> very much uh, a strong, strong company in, in, in Denmark as such. I think that very much depends upon the, upon the country as such. So I'd rather go directly to the uh, important question over here about where do I see the lines uh, in, in the Council of, of Ministers with regards to, to green energy. Well, it's obvious that you have countries that, like, like Denmark, have already embarked upon this, this transformation. So for us, uh, we, have a, we have a history that we can refer to. We also have a foundation that, that we can build on. And uh, I would say we have uh, Scandinavia as such, sort of uh, very much sort of on, on message with regards to this particular question. Great Britain is definitely also an ally on, on this particular question. Germany, to a certain extent, also, depending upon bit your question over there. Uh, also, the, the vested interest as such. And then you have, and one would have to be very frank about that, then you obviously have Central and Eastern Europe coming from a different place, having a different kind of history, also being far more dependent upon coal. So I sit next to, to Poland during the uh, negotiations in the European Union, and, and it's quite obvious that, well, I can make the case, let's become independent of fossil fuels. Um, and he kind of says, well, you know, last time you checked, I mean, did you see, I mean, how much dependent we still are upon coal, right? So it's about 80, 80, 85, if not 90 percent. So obviously we, we start from different uh, points of view, and one will have to be aware of that. However, that is the overall point about the EU, then to, to merge the, uh, the opinions and then find not the lowest common denominator, but find a, a construction where then some of us, the fast movers, the pioneers, can then also sort of help those that uh, have not developed that far. So I think that's, that's still very much the case as such, so I'm quite confident that although it is sometimes difficult to agree, that we do see that, that Europe is now sort of focusing far more upon uh, green growth than we've done before, also because we have different kinds of arguments for doing so. Well, my Polish colleague there, well, he may not be that interested in sort of my, sometimes my arguments about climate change or carbon, uh, CO2 emissions and so forth, but he gets very interested when we speak about energy security. I mean, then we definitely have a, a common language. So I think there are different arguments that work for different countries. The Finnish question, uh, or the... Uh, uh, student from, or from Finland with regards to the EU, well, I think that one is um, one that, to be a bit personal for me, was a bit of a, 
an eye-opener uh, when I uh, joined government and then participated in the COP15 negotiations because, well, I kind of, well, obviously studied the European Union and read all these brilliant articles about the European Union being the pioneers and we could lead the world with regards to climate change. But at the end, well, the rest of the world wasn't really that interested in whether we would go to the 30%. Uh, and well, um, that's been, already been written several books on this, so I'm not revealing any secrets. When the true, true negotiations took place, well, we were not really there. I remember this distinctively, and there's a gentleman back there who confirmed it because it was one of my civil servants, because at a certain stage, the, uh, my Indian colleague passed by in the big plenary. We're waiting for the negotiations to start again. Oh, lots of waiting time, waiting, waiting, waiting for negotiations to be uh, relaunched. So a colleague from India passed by and said, well, Madam Minister, do you have a... Do you have a room, a conference room that we could borrow. And as you know, I mean, being Finnish, you know that we Danes are very polite. So obviously, yes, absolutely. So we show him where the room is. And then the New World Order, basically, walks past me. So first we have number one of China, number one of India, number one of uh, South Africa, and number one of Brazil. They go out there into that room, which we actually show them. And then that was the room, presumably, that they then negotiated most of the, uh, what then later became the Copenhagen Accord. That was also the room that uh, President Obama, who had not been invited to that particular meeting, well, more or less had to gate crash and said, well, could I please also participate in this negotiation? And we had uh, Hillary Clinton running around outside the room, sort of, and somebody said, no, no, nothing's happening in there. But uh, um, apparently there was, and, they, and, you, and knowing women, obviously, well, she, she found the way. They then negotiated the, uh, what then, as I said, became uh, most of the Copenhagen Accord, came back to then uh, the uh, meeting room where then the informal negotiations took place on the Copenhagen Accord. Most of you have probably seen the infamous picture with Angela Merkel looking like this and uh, Sarkozy looking very tired and all the rest. Um, and then there were many European uh, states and heads of state in that particular room, but... Um, the true, I mean, where the actual sort of uh, power game took place, where well, we were not really there. And I think this should be a, a wake-up call for Europe as such, that if we want to maintain our leadership in this particular negotiation with regards to climate change, but also with regards to energy as such, we simply also need to bring more to the table in terms of speaking to a greater degree with one voice instead of having all these European heads of state in the, in the little room, so that's one thing. And the second thing is obviously then to transform ourselves to become more independent of fossil fuels so we have a strength with regards to, to new technology, to regards to basically coming forward with an alternative to the very sort of uh, economy based on fossil fuels. Will we manage that? Well, uh, hopefully we will. This will be one of the defining questions for European integration, I think. Actually, we started, we all know that, I guess, so that we started uh, about, well, in 1950 with the big speech by Robert Schuman uh, going to the coal and steel community. That was the launch of European integration. And as I indicate now, well, we, for the first time ever, we have a summit, again, you could say, on, on energy 
And the way we tackle that question will definitely define the future of the European Union. Obviously, other questions, but I think this will be die Gretchenfrage. Gretchenfrage. Yeah, please translate. I don't know how to translate it. Can I add a little bit to that, to that second um, question? Because the, the amount of voice that Europe will have will depend largely on how united Europe is. And you, you pointed towards. Eastern and Central Europe. What about the Southern Europeans? So on the one hand, they have rapidly rising greenhouse gas emissions. But if you look at Portugal, Spain, and Greece, they also have plenty of sunshine. So there is a, a huge potential there. Where do they stand in, in, the, in the fronts, in the trenches of European climate policy? Yeah, well, we just had a, a seminar uh, earlier, or a conference rather, where a thousand people participated, so I guess it was a bit more than a seminar, uh, where, where Portugal and, and Spain were very active. I mean, uh, exactly as, as you point out, being very strong in, in solar energy, I mean, as, as just one example, Portugal is also one of the countries that is now investing heavily in electric cars, so you definitely see uh, many things uh, happening in, in these particular countries. So you do see a, a movement. Uh, with regards uh, green technology as such. Actually, also a country like, like Italy is, uh, is rather strong in clean tech. Last time I saw a, sort of a um, statistic on that. I mean, you have Denmark, number one, with regards to, sorry, to be bragging with regards to clean tech that makes up 12% of our export, but apparently Italy, well, has 11%, so it's just, it's just below there, and it's definitely breathing down our neck. But that has not really, I would say, transformed itself then into a, a, a very strong position with regards to the EU, that the EU should move to, to 30%, uh, to put it uh, uh, in a diplomatic uh, way. Uh, it's not Italy that, that's truly pushing this, this particular question. And there, I think, one will also have to be fair. I mean, the entire 2009, the European Union had the following argument. We kept on saying, well, the 30%, that's our bargaining chip. If you, China, United States, you step up your game, well, we will then use this, we will then sort of play this card, and then we will go to 30%. So this was the way the overall debate was constructed. Then what happened this, this summer was that, well, we all know that well, Obama was not, despite deep border horizon, able to, to pass the climate energy bill. So this argument will not be able to work. Well, if the European Union went to 70%, I mean, this still wouldn't have an impact upon the, the Senate, uh, or for that matter, uh, China over here. So now it is a completely different debate. Now it's a debate about what's in the interest of the European Union as such. And that is a debate that we are just about to launch in the European Union. Now we'll move towards Cancun. We'll uh, finalize, hopefully, the Cancun package, and then we will have, in 2011, two big debates, a big debate upon energy policy as such, with regards to the uh, Special European Council on Energy, but we also have to agree upon the 2050 plan for the EU's overall transformation towards a more low-carbon society. And that's when the true game or negotiation will, will actually Start. So I think that's sort of the debate that we are now also, as Denmark together with United Kingdom, starting to, to push and say, hey, this is no longer a bargaining chip. Look upon the overall interests of the European Union with regards to green growth and also with regards to energy security as such. Okay, we'll take some more questions. Um, 
all the way on the top, please, and then these three. Hi there, my name is Kalanj. I work in the strategy department of British Telecom. Um, European Union and the US represent approximately 10 to 15% of the world's population. And they are disproportionately responsible for the uh, current climate uh, issue that the world is facing. So the rest of the world are basically paying the debt of uh, the overspending of energy of the small proportion of people in the world. And the situation that you're explaining in terms of investing in green uh, energy is just 10% or 15% of some of the European countries' energy mix. So the, this part of the world, which you, know, you represent as a European politician as well, are still overly uh, consuming energy and they are creating externalities for the poorest part of the world. Um, and those people are still paying the debt for it. So what kind of, do you think European Union have political, um, I don't know how do you call it, but is it politically ready? Are the people ready to reduce the energy consumption that they have? Uh, not only clean the world, but you know, to re to reduce their spending. And I haven't also already talked about the political impact that they had in the last 50 years in terms of you know military Thanks, uh, coups, etc. In the like black-white T-shirts. A bit further down, just too down. Hi there. My name is Tim Jeffrey. I've just uh, graduated um, in a postmaster's um, at UCL. Environment and Sustainable Development. Um, I wanted to ask, actually, um, the dominant narrative in your presentation seems to be um, energy security more than uh, climate change mitigation. I wanted to ask if you think that's the best way to persuade some of perhaps your partners in Europe that perhaps are not so convinced about the climate change message to get on board and to, to transform to a low-carbon society. We'll take one more. Um, hi, uh, my, my question is actually very similar to his. Mine was, um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the, on the view that um, the reason why there's been a failure to find you know, international agreement, even the cli climate bill in the Senate, is that there's been a massive failure in the, in the framing of climate change. So, I mean, there's so many groups that frame climate change in different ways. You know, there's the, the economists at the LSE and, uh, you know, Lord Stern that see it as... Um, as an economic problem, there's those that frame it as, a, as, a, as an environmental problem. You know, there's there's Friedman that, that says it says it's a, you know it's a it's a problem of pride. Uh, uh, you know, there's just so many different ways. Some view it as an ethical problem. Some as a you know public health. There's just so many different frames mm -hmm. that have been tried. And I mean, many people are now saying that ultimately the problem is that we haven't found one single frame that will make a difference. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on the fact that there's a crisis of framing, uh, what, what frame you think is, if any, adequate, and how we can sort of focus on our frame. Thank you. It definitely reminds me of my time at the LSE where Rhoda 
paper on framing, or was it framing of the enlargement question at that time, just when Central and Eastern Europe were knocking on the door of the, of the European Union. So what kind of frame should you use? Should you use the security frame or the uh, frame with regards to economics or the moral frame that we owed it to Central and Eastern Europe because they were obviously part of Europe all the time? I don't think that I would choose one particular frame. I, I do agree that there are different frames out there, and uh, to the question raised just before, it is definitely true that, that my narrative is, is more the, the energy security one, and I could definitely explain that to you, because, well, uh, coming from a country where, I would say for three years, the issue of climate change I mean, was probably the most dominating issue. I mean, we had courses in kindergartens on climate change and why we really had to combat climate change at the uh, home of the elderly. I mean, all these television programs. And I think, personally, I found it, well, at that time I was pro-rector of the University of Copenhagen. We had so many lectures. It was fascinating. It was brilliant. Um, but maybe just after that great, great focus or using that frame, at least in my own country, I think it is fruitful to add a different narrative, which is then the energy security one. And frankly, sort of coming also from sort of an academic background with security politics, well, that, uh, I thought that was pretty relevant to, to, to use that one as well. Although that does not mean that I've distanced myself from, from the climate argument. But I would say that we kind of need different, different vitamins in the debate, particularly because there was so much focus also on the need to put a price on carbon and agree upon a climate deal. And it's very clear now that if we put all our eggs in one basket and just focus upon Cancun, then uh, we are will definitely run into the wall, so to speak. We need also to use different kinds of venues. And uh, I just had the pleasure during the summer to participate in the uh, so-called first clean energy ministerial that was set up uh, with countries uh, that uh, make up 80% of the world's uh, um, energy consumption as such and produce 80% of the world's renewable energy. When we sit around a table and when we agree upon let's have a, a solar and wind atlas, that has a clear impact upon also climate change as such, because obviously if you pursue more renewable energy, that does reduce your emissions. So we need to use different kinds of frames and different kinds of, of, uh, of fora in order to be able then eventually uh, to agree upon the fact that we should have a price on, on carbon as such. Uh, the first question, well, I very much agree that obviously when you look upon the European Union, when you look upon the uh, United States, well, we are the ones who have been consuming energy for, for years and years and years. Uh, and we are still, to a large extent, uh, as you also rightly point out, we are still uh, very much based on fossil fuels. That's also the case in Denmark. When I say we have 20% renewable energy, well, you can obviously do the math that then the other, what, what the 80% then is, right? So we need to transform ourselves exactly in order to, to reduce our independence. And we need to have a climate deal in order to be able to answer the question that you also indirectly raise with regards to the, the justice in particular, also when you look upon the uh, developing world, if you look upon Africa, just to give you one example, Af if we don't have a, a climate deal where we can also transfer um, technology, we can transfer aid for adaptation and so forth, 
The region that has contributed the least to climate change will be asked to pay the highest price. I mean, to me, that is not acceptable. That's why, although some now say, hey, the U UN process will never work, we'll never be able to agree upon a climate deal, let's just do uh, sort of a, a, a sort of a take a piecemeal approach and let the European Union do something and let the smart cities do something. No, we still need to have this global regime, although, frankly, I must say it's very difficult. And going back to the European Union, maybe also to my, my friend from Finland down here, I mean, the European Union is still the region, and as far as I can see, the only region in the world that's actually willing to take on a second commitment period of Kyoto. We are. We just came out after a long debate in, in the Council on uh, Thursday, which dragged on almost to Friday. No, it didn't exactly, but almost. Um, in, in Luxembourg, we agreed upon this, obviously on certain conditions. Why do we still attach conditions to taking a second commitment period of Kyoto? Well, because it will not solve the world's overall climate problem if we, as Europe, are the only ones in Kyoto, alone in Kyoto, I think was a song in the uh, film or movie Lost in Translation, because we only make up 13% of the world's CO2 emissions. So this will not solve it. We simply need to have the global, the global deal, and that's why the European Union, although it doesn't always look uh, brilliantly the way we behave, um, I mean, we are still the ones who actually uh, go and are willing to make the deal uh, with regards to also taking a second commitment period of Kyoto. Okay, we have time for one more question. I'll give the privilege to the gentleman in the suit here, please. Anthony Sheridan, graduate of the LSE, European Movement. Um, two questions. First of all, nobody's mentioned about nuclear power within the energy mix. I'd like to know your view about nuclear power looking forward in Europe within the energy mix, not least in France. And secondly, no mention's been made of the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania in the wind power and the renewables. Uh, Denmark's not so far away from there. Uh, are you very active in getting them on board? Thanks. Yeah, I guess the way uh, this lecture would become world famous in Denmark would be if I now announce that the Danish government is going nuclear. But um, I will not, I mean, although I love the LSE, I will not give you that uh, piece of breaking news, I'm afraid. Um, no, I mean, uh, we decided years ago that we would not go nuclear in Denmark, but we are um, pragmatic. So um, we import uh, nuclear power from Sweden. Hence, uh, we have take the point of view that, well, uh, nuclear is important if you look upon the energy mix of, of Europe as such. Fair enough. That's the way it is. But we will not introduce it in Denmark. Why? Well, because it doesn't really fit with our overall sort of energy mix. We have lots of renewables, and uh, uh, it's very difficult so to, uh, to start a, a nuclear plant and then shut it down when suddenly you have a bit more uh, wind energy, so it doesn't really fit. It's uh, not really cheap when you look upon the various uh, sort of prices I've seen also in, in Finland, the new one that, that's been built. Yeah, I can see you confirm that. And well, then... There's also a bit of a challenge, I would say, because, I mean, now I quoted the Simpsons and the, the, the wind turbines, and obviously we, we love the wind turbines in Denmark. 
if they are not in my backyard, as we all know, and if they are very far away, um, offshore also. Um, so we just had a big debate in Denmark about uh, opening a new test facility for these huge sort of uh, wind turbines. And that sort of nearly took us well, at least six, six months and huge debate in Denmark. So I could imagine if we would launch the debate about let's go nuclear, where you would put that first Danish nuclear plant would sort of uh, take many, many years for us to agree upon. So we'll, so we'll definitely not uh, do that, but as I indicate, it's part of the, of the energy mix in, in Europe as such. Uh, the Baltics, yes, we have a close cooperation uh, with, with the Baltics uh, on, on many issues, uh, renewables as such, but also uh, to think about how we can connect in Europe in a Baltic Sea region as such, also with regards to, to the grid at a certain stage. So this is definitely something that we are focusing upon. And on Monday, the uh, ministers in the Nordic Council uh, will meet a very powerful organization, I can assure you, um, particularly on this particular issue because it is an area where you can work in a very practical sense. And we are looking into the fact how we can improve our common market with regards to electricity. So this will be uh, one of the big sort of uh, events for next week. And then we'll obviously then inform the European Union afterwards how they can learn from our experience and through that also be a pioneering region for the rest of Europe in cooperation. Let me just say that it was an absolute pleasure to have you here. It was a fascinating talk, and it's always good to have uh, our alumni, when they rise to higher positions, to come back to our small university and uh, give a talk. Well, this has been a talk in the European Institute APCO Worldwide Perspectives on the EU series. Please watch out for other talks which will come along. Uh, if I could ask just one thing, please. If you could wait, please, in your seats until uh, Luca and I and, and her staff have gone up to the green room, uh, so I have left the lecture room, please. Uh, she will give an interview to the Beaver. So if you haven't ah, heard enough of yes. her yet, uh, <laughs> next week or so you can read more in the Beaver. But uh, let me now say, and please join me in, thank you very much indeed for a very interesting <laughs>